Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I had an incredibly enlightening conversation this week with Caitlin Shess. Caitlin is a journalist who researches and writes on the intersection of faith and politics. Her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, Relevant, and Fathom Magazine, and she's a staff writer at Christ and Pop Culture. Caitlin is a graduate of Liberty University and currently completing her Master of Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. She's the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, which is now available from InterVarsity Press. Now, on this week's episode, Caitlin and I discuss what we, as pastors and church leaders, can do to help with the political division we see, including why practicing good posture while reading scripture really matters. Caitlin shares four false gospels that many Americans are embracing and helps us positively address some of the political tension between younger and older evangelicals. This is an important conversation and one I hope you and your entire ministry team will discuss together. And now, please join me in my conversation with Caitlin Shess. Caitlin, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Caitlin, in your latest book, The Liturgy of Politics, you make a fascinating point that at first hearing, many people of faith might question. And uh, you, you provide some historical background on the, the rise of engagement by evangelicals in politics, specifically, you know, in the late 70s into the 80s, um, you know, the, the moral majority, the religious right. And then you highlight that the common criticism is that this alignment made the Christian faith too political by tying our faith to political positions. That's that's what most people kind of critique about this. But you, Caitlin, you push back on this critique. You assert that the problem isn't that the movement was too political, but maybe that it was not political enough. And so, Caitlin, can you help us understand what you mean when you state that the movement was insufficiently political? Yeah, and it is a, a surprising claim, I think, <laughs> for a lot of people right. to hear. Um, but really what I was trying to get at was the way in which um, a lot of church leaders, pastors, um, even you know individual people in their communities and their families really said, okay, there's a certain set of subjects the church can deal with and a certain set of subjects that professional political commentators, politicians, media sources can deal with. And so while we kind of had this uh, melding of the Christian faith with Republican politics and kind of it means uh, to be a Christian means to be a Republican. The way that we got there wasn't really by studying scripture really deeply and saying, okay, how do we take these principles and apply them in our particular political context? We really got there, I think, by saying that's someone else's job to disciple people politically and outsourcing that kind of education and formation to people outside of the church, sometimes who were Christians, very often those who were not, but just aligned with us on some on some things. And so while we thought, and we often have said, we're so uh, tied together, these two identities, our, our theological, you know, religious identity and our political identity are so tied together. In fact, the only way that we could really kind of create that alliance was by saying, that's kind of someone else's job to teach you those things. Your pastor, your ministry leader won't really do that. And also, I think, because of some of the cognitive dissonance that comes with tying those two so closely together, we also ended up having to say something along the lines of, you have a set of responsibilities and obligations to your neighbors when it comes to you as an individual, when it comes to you in the church, when it comes to your theological beliefs, but then you have a completely different set of obligations and responsibilities politically. And we actually want to keep those in kind of two separate boxes. You might have to live in both of those boxes as a Christian, but we, we kind of don't want them to touch too much. And while that seemed to be a very political way of doing our faith, it actually wasn't tying them together as closely as I think we should in the sense of taking what we know from scripture, a theologically robust sense of what our faith looks like in public and actually living that out. Yeah, it's interesting, Caitlin, because I think that some would say that what has occurred from, you know, was kind of birthed out of the moral majority and the religious right has now come to a place that um, just isn't 
good, you know, mm-hmm, in, in, mm-hmm. in many ways that people within the church, and there's this frustration, and we're going to yeah. talk a lot about this frustration, especially with younger generations, right? So mm-hmm. there's this this sense that um, it was an effort by evangelicals to make a difference, and it was tried and did not work out. In fact, mm-hmm. it, it may have caused even more damage. Um what what would you say to people who are looking at that and saying, well, you know, there was an attempt made, it didn't work out, and so maybe we should pull back from mm. engaging in politics, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of people are saying that. A lot of people my age, especially younger Christians, evangelicals, who are saying, okay, well, that that was a failure. Let's just be apolitical. Let's not deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, as I said before, part of the problem was, was, again, not that we were so political, but that we were insufficiently political. And, and another part of the problem was that we went into that relationship historically, um, not just strategically, um, the way that we thought we were, right? We may have thought, okay, we're going to use these resources available to us. We're going to kind of align with certain politicians and we'll get our goals met and they'll get their goals met and it will work out for everyone. And Andy Crouch, who I quote in the book, has just a really beautiful way of talking about this where he says that that relationship was entered into from the get-go in a way that was problematic because it really placed a lot of confidence in ourselves to interact and in a way that didn't hurt us, that we could kind of come in and mess around with some things, poke and prod, and and we were the ones that were affecting politics. Politics wasn't affecting us. Mm. And so when we come in with that kind of confidence, it shouldn't surprise us that part of what happened was what happens with all idols, right? We thought we would get a bunch and give very little. And over time, we got less and less of what we wanted and more and more was required of us. So he takes it historically and says, look, there were some social goals evangelicals wanted. And they said, okay, well, we'll support some of your economic foreign policy goals. Um, We'll be your big supporters politically vote for you as long as you do these things. And over time, not only did those social goals get less and less that we, we didn't really achieve what we wanted, but all of a sudden we ended up in a position where the whole kind of range of political views for this one party were suddenly seen as uniquely Christian when they probably weren't. And so Christians who, you know, grew up in that environment just sort of assumed if I, if I listen to my leaders and they tell me that all of these are inherently Christian, then they will be. And then they read their Bibles, they started asking questions, and they realized it wasn't as simple as Christian equals Republican and felt a little deceived. And so I think they kind of have responded to that by either saying, let's just not be politically involved or saying, let's just swing to the other party and kind of give our allegiance there and do all of the same problematic things that our our elders did, but with a different party. And I think if we have the kind of foresight to enter into politics, not with that level of confidence, but with the humility that says, this thing will form us. We have to be careful. We have to rely upon our community, our, you know, the church that we're a part of that should be the basis of our work in the world. We need each other to kind of keep us from entering into that relationship with too much confidence and then in a way that ends up being idolatrous. But when we start off thinking that that we're the ones that will kind of come in and fix everything and we won't be formed by it, then I think we're setting ourselves up for for problems. But the answer to that is not not engaging anymore. I think right. it's engaging more carefully. Yeah, no, that that's good, Caitlin. And and on that note, you share that you're convinced that one of the most important tasks of the evangelical church in America is to examine our spiritual formation in a political Mm. direction. And you're very specific in the way that you speak about that. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yeah. So, you know, part of my desire writing the book was to help us get out of this mindset of just what are our cognitively held beliefs about politics? Um, Because we tend to think we can, you know, engage in the political realm with all of our theology in our heads And we'll just pick up some political beliefs along the way, and it'll all be very much uh, in terms of what we believe cognitively. And we miss the fact that when we engage politically, there are so many things that are trying to um, 
grab our attention affectively, that they want to, they want to grab our hearts, capture our affections. And so if we have the ability to think not only about, okay, how is politics changing me um, affectively? How is it changing what I love, what I fear, what I hate, what my loyalties are to and, and who I'm supposed to be for and against, then it kind of begs the question, okay, if, if politics is so dangerous in that way, if it, if it grabs our affections in a way that is dangerous for a Christian, then how do we counteract that? And so then the heart of the book was to say, actually, we should be thinking about the ways that we are spiritually formed in that foundational place where we get our identity and our community, the local church, and thinking about how our spiritual formation individually and corporately in that kind of place should then form us in a way that we we live better lives out in the world. And so if there are certain political stories, I talk a little bit about that in the book, different stories that are really strong um, in our current context. If there are certain stories in a church that are really grabbing hold of people's hearts, then that's a job for a pastor, a leader, a Bible study teacher to say, not just I'm getting up in front of my people and telling them who to vote for or what party to support. I wouldn't say that at all. But to say, how are you spiritually forming them in ways that counteract those political stories and that push them in the kind of political direction that we as citizens of the kingdom of God, of heaven, are supposed to be working in and kind of reorienting it in terms of of those kinds of questions. Because I think people get really uh, squeamish or uncertain when we start saying, hey, the church should be a place for us to talk about politics. It's not just about policies and leaders. It's about the direction of our spiritual formation, which as is always directed towards a political end. If we're going to be citizens of heaven, if we're going to live in a redeemed city and a redeemed creation, then we have an identity that we should be working towards and that that will require spiritual formation in our churches more than anything else. Yeah, I, I love that, Caitlin. And, and um, that presents you know, a, a lot of hope, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, for for us moving forward, um, I I think that the the uh, concern is that it seems like a lot of people are so bought into mm-hmm. partisan politics at this point that to to get them to step back and be reflective mm-hmm. is is a very very difficult task at this point. Yeah. And it, it just seems to be getting more and more difficult um, just because there seems to be a greater divide. There's more kind of animosity. We see this, you know, online yeah. quite often, right? So, so Caitlin, how uh, can a, a pastor or ministry leader help people who already seem to be so convinced, right? Mm-hmm. How, how can they help them back it up a little bit and be more reflective, yeah, and it, it kind of comes back to, I think, that same idea of a lot of the tools, you know, I'm a seminary student right now, a lot of the tools that we gain in seminary are how to teach people the right things to think, <laughs> you know, how to have right doctrine, how to deal with theological uh, issues in a church, if someone believes the wrong thing, how to respond with with good truth. And I think we take that into the political realm and the theological realm in ways that can be a little bit unhelpful because people's hearts are captured by these really strong political forces. And so, you know, the fights that happen on Facebook or in person, a lot of times what's happening is not simply that two people have very different political preferences or opinions. A lot of what's happening is that their identity, um, their sense of what is good in the world and what kind of world we should be seeking to create are really different. And so those are really emotional responses, even from people who would say, no, I'm being logical. I want to fight you on the facts. There really is something deeper um, emotionally and spiritually that's going on there because it's about what kind of things they've learned to love, what fears they have that they're responding or acting out of. Um, And so I think for, for leaders, for pastors, a lot of it comes down to kind of slower, more general discipleship methods. I think we treat politics differently than we treat a lot of other things, but we kind of shouldn't in the sense that when someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm really angry about this thing in the church, or, you know, I have this, this really strong opinion about something. We've, a lot of us have learned that sometimes that surface issue is not the real issue, that there's something a little deeper going on. And so having the ability to have conversations with people and ask intentional questions to get at those kinds of things, you know, what are you afraid of? 
what kind of loyalty are you are you feeling here? You have to protect these people or protect this ideal or this group of people, this country, this city, this state, um, and kind of trying to work through those sorts of questions. You know, I, I had a conversation with someone in my church um, a few months ago about some of the issues with with race in our country and was she was very upset, um, had a lot of opinions, wanted to send me all these articles. But when we met at the time, we couldn't meet face to face. So we were over Zoom. But when I did see her face, you know, and could have a conversation, what kind of slowly came out was that she was alone in her home a lot because of COVID. She was seeing all this stuff on the news that was frightening. And some of her identity as someone who kind of pulled herself up by her bootstraps and earned everything she got was being threatened by some of the things she was learning. And it was this deeply... um, emotional and spiritual issue. And so we didn't solve anything, you know, everything in one conversation, but it was a good example to me of, you know, if we kept sending articles back and forth, or if the next time we met in Bible study, I said, okay, we're going to talk about this. You know, I'm going to go to Jeremiah or somewhere in the gospels, and we're going to really talk about prejudice or about ethnic differences. Um, I don't think that would have done the same thing for her as someone who was willing to kind of get into the weeds of what's going on with your loves, with your affections, and how can we as the church, both in those one-on-one conversations, but then also in the worship of the church corporately and the spiritual disciplines we encourage people to do, how can we be shaping people's affections so strongly for the kingdom of God and for the King God that, that we would, that all those other stories would sort of fade away. And so often our focus is on, I think, correcting information Mm. when it should be about directing loves in the right direction. Yeah, that, that's excellent, Caitlin. Um, one of the things that you, you touched on just uh, in, in that response, and you write about in the book and, and you've written in, in other ways on, is this idea of fear being mm-hmm. used by politicians, you know, regardless of, you know, what party they're a part of, or, but this mm-hmm. idea of fear being wielded and how we kind of respond to that. Can you talk to us a bit about this this idea of fear and um, why that is, has such an impact on us as we are trying to navigate, you know, some of these political positions. Yeah, so it's really amazing how I think we all kind of know, yeah, politicians fearmonger. That's a kind of normal thing. You see it on campaign ads, you know, the really dark ones where the voice is low and slow and kind of scary and images flash across the screen that are frightening. Um, But one of the things I learned in in researching the book was how sociologists and psychologists talk about fear and how much more powerful it is than we often give it credit for, even for Christians. Um, Fear prompts a physical and a psychological response in us that we aren't even always aware of. You know, when an image comes up of something really frightening, our response as humans is to is to just instinctively react in a self-protective way, whether we are cognizant of it or not. And and one of the other things I learned is that so very often what happens in a response to fear is just protecting the self. And so one of the things that that soldiers have to often, there's so much team building, because when you're in a war zone, you have to be able to fight for your whole team. You can't just fight for yourself. But the instinct in your body is so strong that when you are facing some kind of fear that that's that's that intense, you're going to want to protect yourself and kind of throw everyone else under the bus. And so it takes a lot to kind of prevent that instinct from kicking in. And I think we often uh, don't give that enough credit when it comes to the images, the sounds, the emotions that are involved in politics. I think we tend to think I'm just taking information in when this campaign ad comes on and tells me, you know, there's something really frightening happening outside our borders or there's something really frightening happening in our country. And so and so politician is going to come in and fix that. I can sort of rationally evaluate that argument. But there's something really ingrained in in our bodies that makes it hard to do that, that we just respond instinctively to those fears that are presented to us. And and that's another example, I think, of where a pastor, a ministry leader might think, you know, it's not my job to engage in politics. Well, when your people are having that kind of instinctive reaction to so much, I mean, we're just overwhelmed with media, with information, with, with politics, especially during this season. Um, that's a spiritual issue where people are having, 
you know, kind of the way they interact in the world formed by these fears that Christians are not supposed to have as these motivating forces in our lives. You know, there are legitimate threats. There's times when you could be afraid of something and have a good response, but they're not supposed to be these things that capture us and, and kind of form how we respond to the world. And so even if you're, again, not going to get up in the pulpit and say, vote for this person or not, um, I would not recommend that. <laughs> but, but, but having the ability to say, wow, my people are really being shaped by these mm. fears, many of which are, you know, either not really legitimate or are exaggerated for right. political purposes. Um, and it's not just, I think this is the most important thing. It's not just going to change the way they vote. It, it very much will. That's why there's such effective political advertising, but it will shape them deeper than that so that it's not just voting for a particular politician. It's how they interact with their neighbors, mm -hmm. how they interact with Christians around the world, how they think about their responsibility to seek flourishing in their communities. And so even if you're not super concerned with how they vote, and I, I think sometimes we should be, be depending on why they're doing it or what's motivating it, but really more than that, you should be concerned about the way that the people in your church are living out the Great Commission. And if it's being hampered by the political media that they're consuming, the messages, the fears, the loyalties, then that obviously is something that that is a really important thing for for pastors and leaders to be addressing. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love that point, Caitlin, because um, as as pastors, we're looking at how our people are being shaped, mm -hmm. and we've always known that culture shapes us, right? I mean, culture has an influence on us. Yeah. But it seems as if here in the U.S. Um, particularly that the political culture has become so powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I remember whenever we used to talk about, you know, the, the Hollywood culture, or we used to talk about, you know, the music culture, you know, we used to talk about all these different cultures and the influence they have on us as a people. And it seems like now the political culture is the, almost the, the, the most powerful culture because mm -hmm. it is, seems to be infiltrating everything and, and creating such division. And there is, as you've said, there is this, um, there's this, you know, emotional attachment um, to to politics that I think um, you don't necessarily see as much in like the entertainment world, you know, as much of an mm -hmm. emotional mm -hmm. attachment. But for some reason with politics, there's that emotional attachment. And uh, you, you spoke of this idea of fear and how it relates to kind of um, our own sense of security. And one of the things that, that you write about in the book is you describe these uh, four false gospels that really have influenced many evangelicals here in America. Mm -hmm. And it seems that many people who are embracing these false gospels are actually convinced that they're not embracing them. You know right. what I mean? It's like, it's like yeah. almost uh, impossible to have a conversation. Um, can, can you walk us through each of these false gospels, um, the, the four that you share, and, and we know there are others, but you touch on mm -hmm. four, and kind of explain how are these showing up in the lives of many evangelicals? Yeah. So I, it's funny, that was not kind of the part of the book that I thought would be the most significant, but it tends to be the one that people want to talk about, I think, because it gives some language to something that people are sort of aware of, but haven't haven't really nailed down. Um, so one of them is the, the false gospel of security. And we'll see that um, kind of on a personal level where people, you know, we often pray. That's one of the most common prayers for, for protection, for safety when people are traveling. That's not wrong. But when that kind of not, you know, lower good thing is elevated to an ultimate good thing. That's when this kind of gospel kicks in of if I make all the right choices, if I am responsible, if I live in the right kind of neighborhood, if I put a gate around my house, you know, I will be safe and I will have done that for myself. Um, we see that kind of on a more national level when it comes to kind of securing borders or who are, who are the bad guys coming to get us. We have to secure ourselves from and again, none of that is really about any particular policy. There can be good and bad policies about um, policing or about immigration, but it's really trying to get at, is there a story humming underneath some of those policies that says the ultimate good for a people or for an individual is to be safe and secure, and we can justify anything else to make that happen. Um, that's the, the security gospel. And Caitlin, um, real quick, I want to jump in on that because yeah. what's fascinating about the, the fa false gospel of security is that when you look at 
Scripture, you look at the life mm-hmm. of Christ, the teachings of Christ, it is almost, I don't want to say the exact opposite, but, but um, Jesus and the early church and the writings of Paul, they all make very, very clear that our own personal safety and security is not you know, the top priority for someone who's mm-hmm. following Jesus. I mean, Jesus, speaking of taking up your cross daily and following him, you know, Jesus went to the cross himself. Yeah. Um, we, we know that, you know, the disciples all but John were, you know, killed, executed in mm-hmm. some way. Um, and John was exiled and died on an island alone. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah. I mean, everything that you look at is is so different from this idea of safety and security. And yet we have propped this up as being so important, so valuable, and something that we must fight for to such a degree that if someone even, like what I'm saying right now, says something about it, mm-hmm. you know, the, the question, well, would you not protect your wife and kids, you know, or whatever, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, I mean, that's what, what you get, or, you know, would you not protect, you know, your loved ones, or, you know, and the, so it's kind of this combative, like, um, how could you be dismissive of security? And I don't think it's that, that we're dismissive of mm. safety, right? But it's mm-hmm. more that, we don't we understand that following jesus isn't isn't the safest thing in the world and right. and jesus let us know that jesus made that clear um that in this world we would have trouble that we would face persecution that there would be loss of life and, and those types of things um so i think it's interesting that that some of these false gospels that we we prop up and these things that we idolize seem to be so contradictory to mm-hmm. the teachings of the kingdom, and yeah. yet we embrace them. Before we get into the other three, can you speak to, to that a little bit? Do, yeah. You know, what, what, what do you see is going on there that we can attach ourselves to something so much that seems to be, in many ways, antithetical to um, kingdom theology? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it comes back to this idea that that there are the things that we believe cognitively that, you know, if you were to write a doctrinal statement, you would write, here are the things I believe. And then there are the things that are your kind of gut reactions that we sometimes don't um, interrogate very well. They're the things, again, that you've learned to love. And so, you know, for example, I, I write in the book for the security gospel about hearing a podcast about this woman who had gone through this, this horrible ordeal and was kind of unjustly arrested. And, and my instinct, my response just immediately was self-protective was to be like, well, I wouldn't have made the decisions she made. So she deserves it. And I knew in my head that wasn't true. You know, if someone had had written that out for me and been like, do you believe this? I would have said, no, of course not. Um, And like you said, I think a lot of Christians would say, yeah, you know, we should, we should go to the nations. We should go to, to, to countries where it's dangerous to be a Christian. Um, but that's all very um, hypothetical. It's all the things that we would write down and sign and say we believe. Um, but in the moment, how have you been formed to respond? I think that's, that's the question of not just in, in a safe environment, what would you say you believe? But in the moment, when things are really hard, when when there's a risk involved, how do you instinctively respond? And I think that shows you how you've been formed. And mm. even if, again, it comes back to, I, I want people to preach really good sermons about this stuff. I want Bible study teachers to teach really good lessons. Um, but recognizing that you can really kind of leave people there and think that they've learned that in a way that will change how they live. And it doesn't always happen. It could be something in their head, but not something that has really so strongly formed them that their instinctual response is now a better kingdom minded response. And the work of forming people uh, to respond better involves sermons and, and Bible study lessons, but it also involves you know, discipleship one-on-one, it involves the the music that we sing, that th- those are the words that are kind of just ruminating in our heads, the, the humming underneath all the things we do, the, the sacraments that do something bodily, you know, that kind of repeatedly instill certain ideas in us, spiritual disciplines. That That's why there's so much of that focus in the book is because if we're not really changing that kind of formation that happens in the body that is repetitive that kind of gets underneath the things that we believe in our head and gets to some of how we love and how we instinctively respond then i think we're going to have a lot of people that know a lot of bible stories about how we're not meant to be safe but when the rubber meets the road they're going to choose safety over over caring for other people yeah that's good that's good caitlin because um as we all know everyone's being discipled in some way Mm -hmm. right and and it's 
what is discipling them? <laughs> you know, what yeah. is shaping them? And, and how do we take that responsibility as the church? Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. So let's let's uh, touch on these. So uh, the false gospel security. Um, there are three others that you you write about. Let's let's touch on those. Yeah. So the second one is the prosperity gospel, which I think a lot of uh, people in churches would go, "Oh, I don't believe that. I know churches that believe that, but I don't believe that." And I think we have this image in our head of like the televangelist with a jet and you know fancy clothes, and we're like, "Well, we don't believe that." Right. You know, I'm I'm not praying, you know, believing that I'll just get all this health and wealth if I have enough faith. But on another level, again, it's that cognitively held belief versus kind of how you've been formed, where we do sort of believe that the worlds will kind of give us what we deserve. That if I work hard, I will deserve the wealth I've gotten. If I eat well and I exercise, I will deserve a healthy body. And whether we attribute those things to God or to the market or to, you know, just kind of our community functioning really well, we do have a sense that if I do the right things, then I will deserve the things that I've gotten. And I think the reason I call this a political gospel is because it it kind of shapes the way that we respond to systemic problems, to poverty, um, to injustice, and says, well, if people are having those problems, that's it's because of their own decisions. Hmm. And recognizing that that the world, I mean, we have the doctrine of sin that is far-reaching, generational, gets into all of the, the cracks in our society and changes things so that they're not how they're supposed to be. So we should have every reason to say, you don't always get what you deserve in this world. Um, but the prosperity gospel teaches us that that you should, that if you work hard enough, if you do the right things, you'll get you know good results. And, and it causes not only lack of compassion for people, but then I think it changes our willingness to engage in our communities in ways that bring flourishing because we assume that if people are in a bad situation, they've kind of done that to themselves. Yeah, Caitlin, do, do you think it also, with that prosperity, do, do you think it also kind of elevates in the political realm, like economic gain mm-hmm. uh, and those types of things to a level like, hey, um, if if a particular politician can, you know, get us get us on a right track economically, right. then we can kind of not look at some of the other things that are happening because, hey, you know, the, the economy is good. Yeah. And I think we think that's sort of the base level like that. That's what will allow us the opportunity to do other things instead of realizing that you know, prosperity and wealth can form us in negative ways. It's not necessarily kind of the foundational step to then doing other good spiritual or service-minded things, but that actually being in a certain kind of prosperity can be really dangerous, if not actually destructive to our souls. And that's so woven throughout scripture, both, you know, in the prophets, um, the things that Jesus says about wealth and poverty. If you go to James, you can get real uncomfortable, but we, we don't tend to, to think that way. And it's a, it's a good example. I think again, of those are very American ideals that that prosperity should be the foundational thing we're seeking. And then everything else will kind of fall in line and it's not biblical, but we have so accepted it that we kind of have gotten those two confused. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so security and prosperity. Uh, what are the other two? So the third is the patriotic gospel, um, which is similar to both security and uh, prosperity. They all kind of intertwine, but specifically for American Christians says, um, I mean, it could be any Christians, but especially in my context, writing about Americans, um, it says that our country's goodness is the thing that will save us. That instead of just saying, yes, our country has given us some good gifts, there are some problems that we would like to fix. Instead, we kind of say, this is like the ultimate good, is our allegiance to our country, the prosperity of our country, um, protecting our country against other threats. Um, in America, it often comes along with certain misapplications of biblical promises to Israel that we then take and apply to America. Um, and it comes with sort of uh, putting rose-colored glasses on when we look at our history and saying, okay, America is a is a nation founded on biblical principles, which is sort of a questionable historical claim. But but even if we're going to say that, it forces us to um, kind of defend everything that's happened at the start of our nation and throughout its history, instead of being honest about the places where not only has America fallen short of its own promises, but certainly has fallen short of what Christians should be seeking in their own political community. But when we have kind of elevated it and have believed this gospel, this whole story about what will save the world and what a good world looks like, we're forced to kind of defend everything that America has done. It's interesting, Caitlin, because 
I think of of the four false gospels that you write about that this is the one that kind of gets the ugliest right mm-hmm. this is the one that I mean if you speak out against any sort of you know nationalism or or you know patriotism type thing and and, and question it right if you mm-hmm. question it at all you almost are guaranteed to um, get slapped around, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yes. it gets ugly very, very quickly. Why? Why do you think that that's true? That that this is one that can get so ugly so quickly. You know, even you know, we're speaking within the evangelical church. Yeah, I think it goes back to some of those stories we've told ourselves about the founding of our nation. And once you get into defending that we are a Christian nation, we've always been a Christian nation. You're going to be forced not only to defend some things you don't want to defend, but to defend them really strongly and to to feel like you're not only just defending your country, now you're defending your faith. Because if this is a Christian nation and and someone is criticizing it, then you're criticizing Christianity too. And, and it gets so intertwined. Um, and I also talk a little bit in the book about how this is, I think, one of the best examples of how the way that we've been formed in rituals, in music, in images, uh, in emotions has has really formed us in that way. If you think about a football game with, you know, the the national anthem and the colors and the fireworks and the emotion of of defending your country and and all the things you love about it, or um, kids who go to school every day and say the Pledge of Allegiance, there's something really formative about the rituals. Um, and rhythms of our country that make sense for a country, right? The leaders of a country want loyalty from their citizens. But again, if we don't recognize that it's forming us, not just in this kind of lower realm to, to believe some good things about our country, but it's really forming us spiritually, then I think we would recognize how potentially dangerous it is. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Okay, and then the, the final um, false gospel that you write about. Yeah, the last gospel is is the one that probably um, mo- the most amount of people would deny <laughs> that uh, it's the gospel of white supremacy. And again, um, someone sent me a message recently saying, you know, they're in a different country and they, they really appreciated this gospel, but for them it looked very different in their context and that makes total sense. But in America um, and in lots of other, you know, European countries um, or European countries, there is this message that a lot of especially white Americans have grown up with that, you know, our communities are better, we're safe from crime because of our own, you know, innate goodness, that we kind of grow up in, again, that formative, um, not cognitive, but very formative way, where we don't have a lot of interaction with people that look different from us. Most of our neighborhoods are pretty segregated. Our churches are usually quite segregated, whether that's intentional or because of the way that history over time has done that. And so we end up because of kind of natural human sinfulness and because of the history of legal segregation and uh, institutional racism, we end up in a position where we elevate our own communities, especially our own racial community above others. And again, the reason I think most people would deny this one is they would say, oh, I'm not, I'm not racist. I don't have a cognitive bias against another group of people. But again, that's why that's this framework of not just what you cognitively believe, but about how you've been formed to love is so important. I think about, you know, my own church community of people who are, are lovely people who really want to reach out to the community, but have really only been in predominantly white spaces their entire life. And so there are biases that creep in through the media, through their own families, through just the fact that you only have stereotypes of other people because you haven't had really deep relationships with people who look different from you. And so I give some examples in the book of ways throughout history that unfortunately Christian churches have allowed things like baptism and prayer to continue to form us towards this allegiance to white communities above other communities. But I think, again, it's highly contextual. It's about recognizing the biases in your own community. And for me, living in Dallas, one of the things that's been really important is learning the history of segregation in Dallas and going, these things aren't accidental. They happen for a reason. And we are kind of now reaping the the consequences of that history of segregation that was legal, that isn't legal anymore, but that causes really serious effects in communities where there's inequality and injustice. And our ability to respond to those is really dependent on whether we've been able to disciple ourselves, our communities have been discipling people out of this fidelity to a particular racial community. Yeah, and I think it's important, Caitlin, and even just for, for our listeners, 
Um, you know, there's an understanding that as you're writing about these things, I'm sure there are people who just are completely dismissive as soon as something's mm -hmm. brought up, right? It's just like, whatever, yeah. this is just some person who's out there trying to, but, but you're writing, you're not writing from outside of the evangelical American church. You're writing right. from very much inside. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it could be argued you, I mean, you're a graduate of Liberty University, right? Yes. <laughs> Which yes. is probably one of the, if not the most recognized evangelical American, um, you know, educational institution that that a lot of people have critiqued around many of the things that you're, you've written in your book, right? So, yeah. um, and and like you said, you're in Dallas, you're at Dallas Theological Seminary. So mm -hmm. it's not like you're someone on the outside who's like throwing rocks. Right. Um, you're someone who has grown up in this your entire life. Um, you've been educated in it. You've you've um, you know written. You've you've moved about in it. You've been shaped by it, and and I think that's important because I feel like a lot of the division is, that, you know, and a lot of the, I guess a lot of the the ways that people dismiss things easily, mm -hmm. if they say that is someone from the other side trying to say something about us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or you know that is some and and. For for you to be, you know, in the midst of, you know, the white evangelical church and to be, you know, sharing these things, I think it's important that we – it helps us all, I think, say, oh, wait, wait a second. Maybe we do need to step back and reflect. Mm -hmm. so, so I certainly appreciate that in you. And, and, and there's a measure of, of courage that needs to be taken that you've demonstrated mm -hmm. in in – you know, self-critique. And I think that's one of the things that we really wrestle with um, is, you know, self-critique, right? I think a lot of that comes down to it. There's one There's one other thing that I'd like to touch on. I know that that uh, we've been talking quite a long time and, and we could talk for hours. Um, <laughs> but, but Caitlin, you've written about the frustration younger generations in the church have with politics and mm -hmm. specifically regarding many of the people and political positions that evangelicals have been supporting here in the U.S., you, you share that there seems to be a disconnect with what many evangelicals appear to think, believe, and support, and what Scripture actually says. You know what we what we when we dig into Scripture, what we find. Furthermore, many it seems many older evangelicals dismiss the concerns of younger Christians. Mm -hmm. um, you know, dismiss those voices, saying that they just do not understand, they haven't lived long enough, they haven't seen what I've seen, they're easily swayed by the media, they're naive, or whatever it might be. But there, there's a quick dismissal of, um, of, of voices like yours and, and younger generations who are speaking out and, and doing this self-critique. Mm -hmm. uh, Caitlin, can you talk to us a bit about what is happening between younger and older generations of evangelicals when it comes to political issues here in America? Yeah, I mean, I am kind of live at this place, not only as, as a younger evangelical writing about this, but as someone who uh, serves at a church that is incredibly multi-generational. And so the, the people that I serve the most, the Bible study that I lead, the women that I disciple are my age, but the conversations I have constantly are with or with older evangelicals. And I think part of the the story that's been said so many times that is still unfortunately, I think true, is that younger evangelicals um, watched older evangelicals in the last few elections say and do things that they found quite contrary, not just to what they believe about scripture, but what they felt they were taught by those older evangelicals about scripture and about our obligations in the world. And so I think one of the things that's going to take some work is rebuilding some trust. Um, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but a lot of younger evangelicals feel like the way that we were taught in church was conservative, economic, foreign policy, all of those kinds of policies will just fly off the pages of scripture. And it's just so obvious and it's right there because again, we were formed in such a way that that's kind of how we tended to talk and think. And then when a lot of us began asking questions, reading scripture for ourselves, it was surprising that that didn't seem to be true. And the problem I think with not giving space earlier for people to ask questions, for a lot of nuance, for ways in which we said, okay, I think this is the best way to vote, but it, it's not obvious. It's not just so clearly in scripture that no one can disagree with it. The problem with, with that approach was that it, it made a lot of younger people feel deceived, that there wasn't a lot of honesty about how hard it is to kind of take 
all of the advice, the, the counsel of scripture when it comes to living in the world and apply it to really complicated, difficult situations. And so I think some of the difference, again, is just, and one of the differences I talk about in the book is that a lot of older evangelicals were accustomed to a certain amount of cultural and political power that has been waning. And so there is that sense of trying to get it back and being quite desperate sometimes about trying to get it back. And a lot of younger evangelicals didn't really grow up in that world. A lot of us went to high school and college and we're used to people thinking being a Christian was strange or backward or old fashioned. And so we don't have that same sense of wanting to capture or hold on to uh, political or cultural power. And so I think, like I said before, one of the things is going to be rebuilding trust and another is going to be older and younger evangelicals working together to learn from each other, for us to learn what it was like to be in that position, some of the good things and some of the pitfalls, and for older evangelicals to learn from younger ones about what it's been like to, to pretty much never have that power, never have that sense of being kind of the norm in America, and to help you know, each other move forward into a world in which I think that's going to be increasingly the case, that we don't have that cultural or political power that we used to have. And both of us together, I think, learning from Christians throughout history, not thinking that all that we have is just the, you know, the new young perspective. That was really what I didn't want from the book is for people mm -hmm. to think this is the young person coming in and saying, I have the answers. It was me wanting to say, I think there are more resources throughout history, especially for quite early Christians who did not have any social or political power and witnessed an actual, you know, backwards change to gaining some and all of the pitfalls that came with that that those are the kinds of resources that we should be looking towards. And I think older evangelicals, a lot of times have read a lot more of that stuff than younger evangelicals. So it's gonna take us working together and, and drawing from resources from the past. Um, but again, I think it really is going to require um, building some trust back up and being able to, to have conversations where we're not coming in from such um, polarized positions. But, and I think the best way to get to that place of not having those polarized positions is to say, we're not even going to start with where we are right now. We're going to start with looking at how the church has interacted throughout history with these issues mm. um, and trying to have the humility of knowing that we're not actually in, you know, a unique position. Things like this have happened a lot before, and we have places that we can go to, to learn. Yeah, that's good. That's that's really good, Caitlin. Um, I know we've talked about a lot about this uh, reflecting and, and looking and seeing it where there have been missteps and, uh, you know, where uh, allegiances have possibly been misaligned and those types of things. Um, but, but one of the things that throughout the book you make, you know, very, very clear is this idea, and we've touched on it, this idea of our spiritual formation. I mean, that's the, the subtitle mm -hmm. of the book is spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbor, right? So, so what, what you're sharing is not just critiquing what's happening, but what you're sharing is, yeah. hey, how do we lean into being true disciples of, of Christ and allowing that to shape us in, in how we respond um, politically for the sake of our neighbor? Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the ways, Caitlin, that we can avoid falling for, you know, these false, false gospels that we've talked about, raising up idols, creating greater division, um, is by paying attention to how we read scripture. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate um, how, how you talk about this in the book, about reading scripture with good posture. Mm. I'd love for you to kind of share with us, unpack that um, for us as kind of a way to wind down this conversation as, as a, a hopeful, positive direction of, to, of where we can go and what practices we can take on that can help us as we navigate these, these challenging times. Yeah. So the, I, I, the reason I use that word posture was because, you know, a lot of the context that I grew up in churches and, and now being in seminary, we're really interested in rules. <laughs> like here are the five steps to getting, you know, the right interpretation. And I wanted to, instead of, you know, saying those are wrong, but just say, in addition to some of those things, things you have found helpful, ways that you've learned to read, how are some, what are some postures that we could have? And so one of them is recognizing that we were never intended to read and interpret scripture outside of a community that for, you know, a thousand years, we really didn't have that option regardless, but that we were always intended to have a community of people who could help us recognize our own biases, who could counter us when we have a bad interpretation. You know, that's been the history of the church rooting out heresy in those early years was other people coming and saying, okay, no, you've got this wrong. Um, but even if it's not something as serious as, as a heresy, even just in our own communities, if we tend to read scripture very individualistically, if we tend to, you know, as most of us as sinful humans will do, see the faults of others 
you know, highlighted, but not see the problems that we have that are called out in scripture. Um, we need a community that can come alongside us and especially a diverse community. So I talk both about your local church, hopefully being a place where you're reading scripture together, you're learning how to have yourself balanced by people who are not like you, but also by looking outside of your local church. You know, most of us don't have local churches that are as diverse as we would like them to be yet. And so thinking about people from different backgrounds, perspectives, racial groups, ethnic identities, and trying to read them and see what they see in scripture that we could be missing. And also looking throughout history, recognizing that we are not the first ones <laughs> to try to interpret the Bible, but having, you know, really rich resources. And one of my favorite things about that is when you're reading someone from the past and they say something so strange that maybe really is wrong, but also might just be pointing out in you something that we're not doing right now. That's an abnormally anomaly for us, not an anomaly for them. And so having that kind of check against us and then also understanding scripture as a holistic story, not trying to pull out. We do this a lot with politics, pulling out single verses to just, you know, put next to hot button issues and saying, okay, well, if this is the question, you know, what policy should you support? What person? Here's a list of verses. And they're pulled out of context. They don't, you know, tell you the full story of scripture. And again, if those political gospels are stories, we need a story to counteract it. Humans are lovers and they are storytellers. And so how are we telling a holistic story of the gospel? And then also having a posture of, again, receiving moral instruction in the context of a place where you can practice that in the church. So not just reading scripture and always asking, you know, what's the theological truth here? That's a good question. But also asking, where is this maybe making me uncomfortable because it's pointing out a practice I'm not doing or something I'm doing that's wrong? Um, and how could we in the church not only be you know, having people read scripture and see those things, but then offering them opportunities to practice it. If we have a sermon, for example, on James, and we're learning a lot, we're being really convicted about how we use our money. Are we then having opportunities to practice that through service, through, you know, community groups or through discipleship where someone is saying, hey, can I actually look at your budget? <laughs> it's a really moral document. Mm -hmm. and it says something about your spiritual formation. Could we really do that? And that's scary, but it's a, it's the right kind of context for those conversations. And so having that kind of posture of, I'm expecting to be convicted. I'm expecting to meet people who are not like me in scripture that actually might be doing something that's surprising to me, but that forces me to recognize the way that my own culture and political culture is shaping me in ways that are that are counter to the kingdom of God. Yes, that is so helpful, Caitlin. And I, I appreciate this has been such an insightful conversation. Again, thank you for um, the book, putting, putting um, you know, all these thoughts on paper. Um, the book is entitled The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And Caitlin, um, really want to encourage our listeners, uh, especially in, in the time that we find ourselves. I mean, um, you know, this is an election year here in the U.S. And uh, ministry leaders, if you're looking for um, some some great guidance and some insights on navigating this with your people. I highly encourage you to to pick up Caitlin's book. Caitlin, if if people want to connect with you, um, is there is there a way they can connect with you online or through social media? Yeah, I spend way too much time on Twitter at <laughs> Caitlin Chess, um, and I still blog a little bit at CaitlinChess.com. Excellent. Okay, and we'll have links to the book and links to how you can connect with Caitlin in the show notes for our listeners. Caitlin, once again, thank you so much for making the time to be with us. We certainly appreciate all that you had to share. Thank you. God bless you. You too. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. We hope you are finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send an email to podcasts at churchleaders.com or connect with me on Twitter. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app available for both Apple and Android. So be sure to check out Faithplay. Until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.